Hello everyone, I'm Philip Dickens and this is From the Hill of Megiddo, the podcast serialization of my book of the same name. In the last episode, we saw the truce between warring vampire factions conclude with a deal struck to capture the Champion of Man, whilst the guild set plans in motion to take on the Van Fury. Now, let's dive into the next three chapters and see what follows. Chapter 30 Laurent's attention was very different than Simon's attention. Simon was always too close, sneaking in a touch or a caress whenever he thought he could get away with it, never getting the hint that he was unwanted. Laurent kept his distance and had a calm self-assurance that the goth boy didn't. Yet there was something in his manner that made Katie's skin crawl all the same. After he had made his move, Christmas was upon them, but Katie waited until after the new year before getting in touch with him. He didn't call him, because a telephone conversation with a vampire just seemed too surreal a concept even now, but went to the castle now during the daytime and knocked. The man who answered the door, short and broad with a head too small for his body, stared at her in a way that made her insides tighten, until she stutteringly asked for Laurent and showed him a card. The high, open main room of the club looked even more like a church in daylight. The man who had answered the door led her through to the same lounge where she had first met Laurent, this time he was alone and dressed more casually in a t-shirt and jeans. Although just from the look of them she knew that they cost more than most people earned in a month. He stood stiff and awkward until he directed her to sit. And even then she felt so tense that she could feel the twinges in her back. However, in spite of herself, he was soon at ease and lost in his words as he talked about why he had given her his attention. You are unlike the others, Katie, he said and she felt a thrill as her name passed his lips. They clamour for our attention to fill a void in their lives. We are... something else. Romance. Danger. Mystery. Whatever they feel that they lack. Their lack of a self screams like a siren, and you know that at a word they would open their veins just to be part of something greater than them. This was true, Katie knew. He also knew that it was something Laurent and the Van Fury would happily exploit without a moment of doubt. The thought made her go cold. I do not get that sense from you, however. There is no great void in your life, nor a need to define yourself through your association with others. You approach me with both curiosity and fear, which suggests that you are somewhat wiser than your friends. She shifted in her chair, put out by how easily he had read her. But if he knew more about her than what he could see at the surface, he didn't show it. I would sate your curiosity, Katie, and assuage your fears. If you allow it, I feel we could be fast friends. She nodded, in part because this was more than she could have hoped for in terms of access to Laurent. But that wasn't the entire reason that she agreed to his suggestion, and that was what scared her. Laurent was calm and restrained. Yet behind his disarming manner was a powerful hunger, sexual as well as for blood. If Simon creeped her out because he was so obvious in his intent, then Laurent did because he wasn't obvious at all. Yet his intent was darker, and he had the power to act it out. The numbers on the Human Defence League side of the barrier outside of Agadatha School were finally starting to dwindle week on week. They were no less vocal and angry but clearly the regular protest was becoming less appealing to a lot of the League's supporters. It wasn't the police, 
who had gotten their act together very quickly after the first clashes the year before. The demonstration itself had very quickly become routine, with insults exchanged and crowds dispersed to a schedule. But the League had found other ways to cause trouble, ambushing lone demons afterwards and trying to cause fights once the cops were out of the way. It was the organised response to this that had started the decline of the protests. Would-be ambushes were set upon by mobs armed with bats and sticks. Those who came to lurk by the school walls in the middle of the day were chased off. The one attempt to demonstrate as the children left school was outnumbered and flattened before the authorities knew it was happening. The League tried to respond to this by publicly denouncing demonic violence, claiming that the victims of these reprisals were no more than peaceful protesters making their way home. Spokesmen decried police complicity in the attacks and demanded that the state take a firm stance against creatures spat out of hell that now make us fearful to go about our own communities. But the demons weren't just confronting and repelling the League. Hundreds upon hundreds of leaflets were dropped through letterboxes. The League's message was counted on blogs and social media, and videos of League members attacking demons, including demon children, went viral. Bigotry remained strong, but there was a shift in the tide of opinion. Humans joined the demon side of the demonstrations, and an advocacy group called Humanity Against Hatred was founded. A banner to that effect was being unfurled outside the gates of the school, after the Human Defence League had been dispersed. The barricades had been removed and now demons and their human allies milled about in a crowd, a buzz of conversation around them, as several press photographers attempted to form them up behind the banner to take pictures. From across the road, Taylor watched this with some impatience. He had a small number from her unit with them, but they felt at this point that the level of organisations Obi had accomplished among the demons made them largely superfluous. I wish we were able to address the vampire problem this efficiently, he said. I'm sure we will, Mayo said, with a sympathetic look at Taylor, and I'm sure we'll catch up with her as well. Taylor glanced at her, then turned to look at the photo up across the street when she felt tears come to her eyes. Tass? Yeah, except I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. Then somebody else can... No, it has to be me. As much of a cliche as that is, it's just... Hard. Yeah, I know. Maya put a hand on Taylor's back and rubbed across the shoulder blades. I mean, I don't, with this specific thing in vampires. But I know what it's like to lose someone and still have to face them. The look on her face warned Taylor not to ask, as curious as she was what this meant. The photographers had finished now, and the group behind the banner was drifting apart into smaller groups as the banner was rolled up. Obi stepped out of the crowd and gave a wave to Taylor and Mio. They waved and nodded back at them, before calling it a day and heading back to the van that had brought them here. Yeah, we probably could have gone an hour ago, or not come at all, Mayo said. Maybe you should have. The voice came from the van. As the side door opened, they saw the bodies of the rest of their team lying inside. Their throats had all been cut. But before Taylor or Mio could process this, the vampires stormed from the van to surround them. Mio stepped forward and kicked the nearest vampire in the face before grabbing the saber she dropped. He swung it at that vampire's neck, then ran a second one through. Taylor drew her machete and parried an attack, but she quickly found herself outnumbered and thrown to the floor. Mio fared better, a flurry of kicks, punches and sword thrusts allowing her to carve through the enemy and take several of them out. But then she too was overpowered and flung to the ground besides Taylor. 
Don't worry. A voice said as boots on their chest pinned them down. You two get to live. But in exchange for that, you're going to pass on a message. The boots left their chests and hands grabbed them to roughly hoist them into a standing position. There they found themselves face to face with the short vampire whose head looked too small for his wide shoulders. Laurent de Castle now allows you to persist because you are useful in taking on his rivals, he said. But your decision that he too needs taking on is misguided. He is well aware of the guild and he will not hesitate to destroy you, the sentinel, and even the champion of man if you cross him again. We are not to be trifled with. They didn't see the fists that knocked them unconscious, and when they groggily awoke they found themselves being carried away on stretchers from a crying scene. In the shadow of the enormous gothic structure of the Anglican Cathedral, overlooking the path down into St. James Cemetery, stood the oratory. Steel railings and a locked gate separated off the building from both the cathedral and the cemetery below. It was roughly the size of a small house, maybe a bit taller than a bungalow. It was built in the style of a Greek temple, and six columns in front of the door supported the roof. You know, Bryce said, I must have gone past this place countless times and never knew what it really was. Never knew much what it is officially, to be honest, let alone what was underneath. Gaz said, Well, you wouldn't. Not the kind of thing that the architect or the current curators would want to advertise. I'm just surprised they never tried to seal it off more completely. They hopped the railings with ease. They walked up the steps and shoved at the door, the lock and hinges cracking as it flew open. Inside, vertical columns lined the centre aisle of the building up to the stone bust of an angel mounted on a plinth. Statues and reliefs lined the walls. Gaz and Bry paid no attention to them, instead walking straight up to the angel statue and shoving it backwards so that it was right against the wall. Where it had been, on the floor, there was a plaque marked with symbols that they couldn't decipher. I don't get it, Bryce said. This place is only two centuries old. The oratory is, Gaz said. What's below is pre-Christian. Actually pre-pagan in all likelihood, before mankind had evolved enough to need gods to explain what they couldn't understand. Huh? Gaz pulled a pen knife from his pocket and ran the blade across his wrist, wincing as he sliced the artery. Then he held it above the plaque and let his blood drip into it. He felt the ground tremble and watched as the plaque slid back to reveal a staircase leading downwards. Gaz lifted his arm up and held a tissue over it to stop the blood flow. When he felt the skin starting to knit together, he let go and tossed the tissue aside. Remind me to eat some more when we're done here, he told Bry. Eat some more when we're done here, Bry said. Don't be a cunt. Bry laughed, then stepped onto the stairwell. Shit, I can feel it even from here. He was right. All the hairs on Gaz's arms and neck were standing on end and his skin tingled as he stepped forward. Come on, he said. Let's get this done. The steps were heavy stone and they led down into absolute blackness. Their footfalls echoed all around them as they moved down into the passageway, hands against the walls on either side for balance. Soon the residual light from the oratory disappeared and they pushed on in darkness. Gaz wasn't sure how long had passed when they saw the light again. At first, it was just a pinhole of yellow in the black. Then black became grey, and they could see the steps ahead of them. The rough walls of rock boxing them in to either side, 
and the ceiling which followed the same downward slope as the steps lined with faces. All had wild hair with snake heads at the tips, horns above the eyes, and barbed tongues pointing out of a mouthful of fangs. Is that what the locals look like? Rice said. Dagadatha, the demon saint? Gaz said. You mean like the school? I mean we're in the right place. Sure, because it'd be embarrassing to have broken into the wrong ancient demon graveyard. They came to the bottom of the stairs, where torches burned from sconces on either side of the archway just beyond. Gaz and Bri exchanged a look as they reached the bottom. Then at Bri's insistent gesture, Gaz led the way through. They found themselves on a platform overlooking the ground, around 50 feet below. A staircase led down from either side of the platform. Up above, the ceiling reached about 100 feet above their heads, airing down towards the walls where it was supported by vast marble pillars. A mural covered the ceiling, faded in parts and broken in others where stone had fallen, with two armies of winged creatures facing off on either side of a central star design. One army looked mostly human, clad in golden armour. The other looked like giant bats in black armour. Their battlefield was the sky. Below, the floor was marble. There was an altar on a raised platform halfway along each wall, guarded by statues of two winged creatures with swords crossed in front of it. All the statues stood in the corners and jutted out from the walls. On the floor itself, two rows of sarcophagi, each made of marble and carved with the same intricate symbols as on the plaque in the oratory, led from below the platform they were stood on to the opposite end of the hall. Well, fuck me. I'll pass, Gaz said. But yeah, I was expecting a cramped hole, stinking of decay and lined with coffins. Not this. Noadu did say very specific rituals and carvings were required to bind higher demons. Yeah, but that's the Enochian symbols on the coffins. The rest is purely aesthetics that no fucker will ever see. True. Beautiful, though. Gaz gave Bri a look, to which Bri responded with a shrug. What? They descended the stairs to the main floor and made their way across to the altar at the opposite end. Behind the crossed swords of the two statues, there was an inscription on the walls, again in the same symbols. Your turn. Gaz said. Bri stepped ahead of him and took the penknife when it was offered. He dragged the blade across first one palm and then the other, before stretching his arms out and putting each hand on a blade. There was a metal clang and the sound of stone sliding on stone. At each altar, the two crossed swords lifted away from one another and their bearers turned to face away from the altar. Easy peasy, Bri said. Gaz nodded. Yep. Now just one little ritual to break the seals on these boxes. And we're out of here. Kind of good that they won't arise while we're still here, though. Really? Couple more trumpets before they do. But the last thing I want is to bump into one of these things when it's just woken up. Gaz walked around and took his place on the other side of the altar. Mio and Taylor were both beaten up enough to need several days to rest in the hospital. After that, a huge amount of time had been taken repeating their statements to the police about what had happened in several different settings. They never mentioned the threat at the end or the link to Laurent de Castelnau. 
although this was repeated in full to the council back in Cyclades Tower. If he thinks we're just going to back off because he makes threats, Jess said. Then he's right, Miles cut in. Everybody in the room gave him pretty much the same look. But now, we need to make it look like he scared us off, he said. It's not like there isn't plenty else to busy ourselves with. This shouldn't be too difficult to pretense. Firstly, we need to make sure we've got the numbers on the streets to improve patrols of a night so that we can take the fight to Gaz's lot and basically bring vampire attacks as close as we can to nil. Yes, Tay, can your units take care of that? Yes, looked at Taylor, who nodded after a moment's hesitation, then said, Sure, but we'll pretty much be putting all of our eggs in one basket. That's fine. That's exactly what we want to look like we're doing. Toby, is it safe to say that the demons are organised enough now to deal with the Human Defence League without a guild presence? I think so, he said. This Humans Against Hatred group is bringing a lot of numbers in too, so I don't think we'll have much of a problem. Get down to the construction strike as well, Jess said. It reckons there's quite a lot of people down there whose minds are changing towards demons pretty fast. So especially if you show up and support them, then some of them could return the favour. Sound, Obi said. I think we'll do that. Okay, good. Miles looked up with an aisle. Now, although they haven't made a move yet, we do still have a potential army of demons holed up somewhere in the city. We can root them out, Anil said. Sound, Joel, your main priority is going to be tracking the witnesses. Given the havoc they're causing, I don't like having to just wait for them to come. So as soon as they move to somewhere I can go to them and end what they're doing, let me know. Will do, Joel said. I've been in touch with guild outfits in all the places they could possibly come out of Mardi territory, if they're definitely heading west, and they're all willing to help us get a more precise location for them. Great. While we do that, we also need to tighten up our security. It's clear that the Van Fury are watching us that they know more about us than they should, and that they have the numbers to make us vulnerable at short notice. We need to fix that, find out how they're watching us, discover the extent of what they know, and change how we work so that they can't ambush us like that again. I'm guessing that's where I come in, Jack said. You know this gig far better than any of us do. You've been doing it longer. Okay, but no age jokes. I'll go over everything and see what I can come up with. Awesome. Everything else depends on that. So make sure you let us know as soon as you're ready. What about you and Hayes? Joel asked. We have a bit of travelling to do. Oh, well that's romantic. Jess said. Hazel's cheeks flushed with colour. Joel saw this and frowned at the same time as Miles saw it and smirked. This only made the red deepen. Fuck off, Jess. Hazel said. He looked at Miles. And you and all. That set Miles off laughing, and he had to cover his mouth and turn away. Hazel shook her head, but her mouth twitched as the threat of a smile fought against the frown on her face. He let it come, but it did nothing to dampen the redness of her cheeks. Joel stood and left abruptly, the legs of his chair scraping against the floor and making everybody wince. Jess raised an eyebrow. What was that about? Don't, Hazel said, shaking her head. Sorry, Jess said, looking back to Miles. I probably spoiled the dramatic implications of what you were about to tell us, didn't I? Just a bit, Miles said. Anyway, 
Joel was able to do a bit of digging. It turns out that Laurent and the others like him are all self-declared viceroys of their chosen cities. Above them, here at least, a van called Maria Savanovich is apparently a duchess with command of the entire British Isles. You going after her? Not quite. She answers to the Van Fury's ruling High Council, who it seems operate out of northern Hungary. We're going to find them and annihilate them. Joel sniffed and rubbed his eyes. It was cold outside, but at that moment it was just easier to cross his arms tight across his chest rather than go back inside. His mind was a jumble of incoherent thoughts. He shivered and leaned against the wall outside Cyclade's house. He didn't know how long he was standing there before he heard someone say, Joel, are you okay? Behind him, he turned to find Jess standing there, a lit cigarette in her mouth. Oh, hi. Yeah, what's up? You? What's going on with you and Hazel? Because that was an epic tantrum. He frowned. Nothing. Did you... Did you two used to... He laughed. No, we never used to anything. He doesn't even like me. Ah, uh, 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 what? He shook her head. Look, I sympathise. Unrequited love or an unrequited crush or whatever is shit. But that's all it is. Hayes doesn't owe you her affection, or even an explanation for not returning it. No, I know that. I never... I'm sure you didn't. But it's still uncomfortable. So stop it, alright? He opened his mouth to say something, but decided against it, and just nodded. He waited for Jess to finish his cigarette, then followed her inside. It was staring off into the distance and shifting from one leg to the other in an attempt to get blood flowing after a long morning on the picket line, when Jake nudged him. Looking suddenly agitated, he pointed down the road. It followed his gaze to a small gang. Fourteen lads, most in their early twenties, but two, looking at least a decade older. Marching towards them behind a large St. George's Cross flag with Human Defence League and Demons Out printed on it. Shortly, the whole picket line had caught on to the newcomers. There were mutterings and murmurs on either side of Kit, and he could feel everyone tensing up. Some of the new arrivals wore broad grins on their faces, approaching the strikers with a swagger. Thought this was supposed to be a strike against demons? One of the lads said. He was stout, with a thick head and close-cropped hair. It's against exploitation? Someone answered. Kit didn't see who. Oh yeah? You can't have exploitation if there's nobody to exploit. Finger thrust accusingly at the nearest demon picket. When they came out of hell, they started the end of the world with them trumpets. And yet, they've been given our jobs and our pay while we get nothing. That's why we're on strike. It's not a workplace dispute, you soft lefty bastard. It's a war. It stepped forward. Fuck off, lad. You and your gang of Timpot twats. He said. Oh, you think you're hard, do you? We're almost nose to nose now, except the kit was a head taller. I fought real battles with real monsters. You think terrorizing school kids and people trying to make a living is anywhere near the same thing? The lad didn't flinch, but as the picket line drew together around him, his mates pulled him back and told him it wasn't worth it. Yeah, fuck off. The pickets jeered. This isn't over, the lad shot back. The war against the demons doesn't end until they're all gone. It shook his head and turned away. 
Chapter 31 After an early morning journey from Liverpool to Manchester Airport, the flight to Budapest took three hours. Miles and Hazel were met by a sour-looking man with unkempt stubble who guided them to a beaten-up and rusted American muscle car. He introduced himself in heavily accented English as Bella and said that he worked with the Hungarian Guild's mountain outfit. The northern mountains and particularly the Mantraslanic area are home to the knack trap, he told them as they drove along. Monstrous great birds which feast on children. Their population is under control and mostly confined to protected areas. But they are still a pest we must deal with. It took them a further two hours of driving to reach the local guild base, a large cabin in a heavily wooded area around 60 miles to the northwest of Budapest. A group of six local guild members introduced themselves. It would be their job to brief Miles and Hazel on the journey ahead and to get them as far as the castle. The briefing part didn't take too long, however, and they were left to get some sleep in the cabin while the Hungarians all returned to their homes for the night. Two rooms had been made up with beds for them. Miles spent most of the night pacing, and when he did sleep it was for a fleeting two hours. Hazel was jolted awake from the other room by him crying out, then sat listening as he got out of bed and resumed pacing. He was conflicted about whether to go in and comfort him, but decided against it given how reluctant he was to talk about himself, even now that he was less closed off. He pretended to sleep until finally she actually did drift off. The next day, no mention was made of the incident by either of them. They were both up, dressed and breakfasted by the time that their guards returned, and not long after that they were off. It was only so far that they could go by car and after a two and a half hour drive which took them to a hillside road with nothing but mountains thick with trees rising all around them. The car pulled up at a seemingly random spot somewhere along the road and they all got out, salvaging heavy military backpacks and sheathed machetes from the boot of the car. They hiked on through heavily forested terrain until sunset, by then Hazel had long lost her bearings, wet was pouring off her and her arms and legs ached and from a glance around even the natives were in the same state. Hence were set up and a fire started, the meat roasting on it the happiest thing Hazel had ever smelled, though she had no idea what it was. Miles disappeared while everyone else ate, though once he returned he looked as refreshed as everybody else, though Hazel surmised that he'd gone to get blood and did her best not to think about the possible source. Hazel and the two women in the group from the local guild shared one tent, while Miles and the local men shared the other. Miles volunteered for the first watch, however, and when the sunrise woke Hazel she found him still awake examining the folded corpse of a bird the size of a small child with great black wings that could only be Bella's knack trap. After the first the women then the men washed in a nearby stream, more meat was roasted on the fire to set them up for another day of hiking. This was just as arduous and lacking as landmarks as the day before, Yet according to Bella they were on schedule, and there was little surprise when by noon they reached a steep incline. Castle is at the top, he announced proudly. We have always known of it, and nearby villagers passed on stories in hushed whispers of what dwells within. Yet you will find it on no map, and most don't even know its name. Its name was Castle Absalom. It came into view after an arduous four hours of climbing, at some points nearly vertical. That left even Miles shaking and struggling to recompose himself. They all stopped for several moments, staring at the circular turrets and high stone walls of the castle. The High Council itself numbers ten, Bella said, 
They will also have human servants who cannot die as long as the vampire they serve lives. We do not know how many, but there have been no reports of vampire activity in the surrounding area for several centuries. So this castle must be self-sustaining. So you should expect enough of them not only to wait on the Van Fury, but also to farm and so on to provide food and drink to the humans. Right, Miles said. So basically expect a village worth of them. They will not be your major obstacle, however. That will be the Strigoi. Strigoi? Yes, like vampires. They are human revenants who drink blood. They do not have the agility of vampires and are not particularly smart, but there is a certain brute strength. Is this how you say it? Yes, a brute strength that should not be ignored. I've never heard of them before, Hazel said. Yes, well, they are largely extinct. Those guarding this castle, if indeed they still do as two centuries ago, may be the last of their kind. With that, they pushed on upwards, eventually finding steep steps carved into the hillside which made their journey just the slightest bit easier. They arrived at a heavy wooden door that was not the main entrance to the castle, just as the sun was beginning to set. Above them, the silhouettes of broad figures could be seen wandering across the battlements. The Hungarians took the packs of everyone and stowed them by the tree line away from the steps. Everyone now only had their weapons, and the immense lightning of their loads was enough to give everyone a fresh burst of energy. Miles, watching the battlement patrols carefully, instructed everyone to wait where they were. When there were no silhouettes above them, he ran to the door and leapt up onto the battlements in three movements. Each time, he caught an outcrop of stone, and instead of taking a handhold, he pushed it so that he propelled himself further up. Suppressing a grunt, he hoisted himself over the side and onto the narrow stone walkway. In either direction, he could see what must be Strigoi walking away from him. They had round heads and pointed ears, their hair thin and standing up in wild strands. They had stout bodies covered by long, well-worn hide coats and walked with an awkward, stiff waddle. Miles picked the one furthest from him and stalked towards it, keeping himself low and making no sound. As he got closer, he noticed their scent. A noxious mix of stale clothing, dried urine and rotten meat. When he was almost upon it, the creature turned. It raised trembling arms that ended in three-clawed hands and hissed. Two pointed fangs at the front of a gaping mouth which sat in a grotesque, squashed-looking face. Miles leapt over it, threw his machete and decapitated the thing from behind before it was aware of what was happening. Its companion, however, became aware of its fate and ran towards Miles with a ridiculous lumbering totter. The sound coming from its mouth was something like the squeal of a rat. A kick to the stomach doubled it over and halted its run. The machete cleaved its head off as it hunched there. Then Miles looked over the battlements into the castle grounds and found them still quiet and empty. The castle itself was a black shadow against the grey sky, with no lights visible inside it. He dropped down into the grounds, surprising and slaying another Strigoi before unbolting the wooden door that led out to the stone steps on the hill and beckoning Hazel and the others inside. I couldn't see any lights, he told them in a whisper. You would not, Bella said. The great hall is where you will most likely find them. He pointed to a doorway. Follow that main corridor through. We will take care of the rest of the Strigoi. You should be alright. They're not much cop. We are not all vampires and champions of man. Bella smiled, then beckoned the other men and women onwards. Good luck. Once Miles and Hazel entered the castle, 
they were able to follow the sounds of the Great Hall. Somebody was strumming on a guitar and singing a song in Hungarian, while many others spoke and shouted in a great din which indicated a feast. They stopped before the door into the hall, which was open, and Miles took several steps to peer inside. The ten vampires all sat on one table at the far end of the hall, with no food laid out in front of them, but with humans sat on their laps from whom they were feeding. But for the blood trickling from the humans' neck to their bare shoulders and chest, the vampires might have been kissing them tenderly, their hands caressing the victims' bodies as though they were lovers. The rest of the humans were sat around two tables which stretched, side by side, away from the head table. A rich array of meat and vegetables laid out in front of them suggested a considerable farming operation somewhere on the grounds, especially as those being fed easily numbered at least 50. Miles stepped back and described the scene to Hazel. We should make straight for the vampires at the head table, he said. The humans might think twice about fighting once they have their mortality back. The way out might be easier than the way in. Sounds like a plan. Miles agreed. No sooner did they step through the threshold than all the vampires stood up, pushing aside the humans from whom they had been feeding. One sat at the head of the table on a seat that looked like a throne, shouted something while pointing at them. In response, all of the humans stood up to face them. Mars and Hazel ignored this. Each picked a table and leapt on top of it, sprinting to the opposite end. Those who tried to climb up after them were easily disposed with a kick or a punch, and after a couple of moments they each leapt across to the head table, picked a vampire, and set upon them. The humans made the charge at Mars and Hazel in defence of their vampire masters, but when the first one's head was cleaved from his shoulders the crowd stumbled, and people fell over one another as some, sharply aware of their newfound mortality, scrambled to get away, while others tried to press forward to avoid having to face theirs. This brought almost the entire mass to a standstill, as Miles and Hazel fought on. The control and influence that these ten vampires exerted over considerable numbers of their species across the globe wasn't reflected in their ability to defend themselves. Over half of them died without any real fight, whilst the rest managed to get only a few sparse blows in before being knocked down and decapitated. With the death of the last of the High Council, the humans they had kept for so long lost all composure and fled screaming. One woman who had been dinner at the head table, and who was still topless and had her own blood drying over her neck, shoulder and breast, cried out, Murderers, what have you done? Before fleeing with tears streaming down her face. Was that too easy? Hazel said. Dunno, maybe. Mars said. Catch up with the others and do a full sweep of the castle? But if their quick defeat of the Van Fury High Council seemed too good to be true, the proof that it was didn't present itself. With only minor wounds sustained, Bella's team had wiped out around 15 Strigoi, and a full search of the castle from the dungeons below to the highest tower found nothing more threatening than the humans, now robbed of their immortality, who glared at them every second that they were there. They are broken, it seems, Bella said. Yeah, Hazel agreed. But I can't really believe it was that easy to take the castle and kill the High Council. Legends tell that it would once have taken an army. The Strigoi were far more numerous and the whole castle was closely watched. We have records of unsuccessful sieges from the past by sizable forces. It would seem that isolation and obscurity made them complacent. Either way, Miles said, let's not look a gift horse in the mouth, eh? Get out of here before the locals turn on us. Nobody disagreed. 
it was full night when they left the castle and under torchlight they retrieved their packs and headed back down the hill until they found flat ground to make camp. A further day and a half of hiking back the way they had come saw them back to the car. They were an hour into the drive back to the guild cabin. A small village just visible through the forestry below the road they were on. When from nowhere someone leapt into the road and collided with their car. Bella pulled to a halt, shouting that he hadn't seen them. He and Miles jumped out to attend the victim, who turned out to be a dark-haired woman in her late 20s, whilst everyone else strained to look. She was still alive, but had broken her leg and several of the bones, and was swimming in and out of consciousness. You came out of nowhere, Bella said. I know, mate, Miles assured him. But why would she... At that moment, there was a high scream, and a hand grabbed Bella's shoulder. Before he could react, the thing had shoved him to the ground and shoved its teeth into his shoulder. Miles jumped up and kicked it in the face, sending it sprawling. It was a corpse, relatively fresh but definitely dead. The peeling back of its lips had set its face into a snarl and it groaned in Miles' direction as it flailed and struggled to right itself. As it did, another three surged out of the forest onto the road with high-pitched screams. Shit. Everyone else had jumped out of the car now. Miles picked up the corpse on the ground, still struggling to right itself, and spun to fling it at its three friends. In the collision, they all fell backwards into the forest, but there were more screams from further along the road, indicating a larger mass hidden there. Get weapons, Miles shouted to the others. We're going to have to abandon the car. He lifted up Bella, who cried out as he was moved, and another of the men from the guild ran over to shoulder him, saying... You fight best. I take him. Okay, here too. Mars pointed at the woman on the ground. There were shouts in Hungarian. Then both of the wounded were being carried while Mars, Hazel and the guild members without burdens all had their machetes out ready for a fight. They headed off the road and down the slope towards the village. Were those? Hazel said as they moved down the hill. Zombies, yeah. That means the witnesses did this. Yeah, well, we can worry about that and where they are once we're away from the outbreak. It took them about 20 minutes to reach the village, by which time they had left the screams and growls of the walking corpses behind. The village itself seemed untouched. The road was clear and there were people in the market square, carrying on as normal. The houses were all at least a century old, but well kept, with rich flower beds and neat lawns framing them. Farther along what seemed to be the only road in the village, they could see a church with a steeple and a traditional tavern facing each other. The first person to see them was a middle-aged woman, who reacted to the sight of blood and machetes by screaming. Several others rushed to see what was happening, and there was nothing Mars and Hazel could do but avoid the suspicious glares as several of the guild tried to explain what had happened. Not understanding Hungarian, they had only the volume of people's voices to go on in judging the mood, and nobody seemed to be getting quieter. Eventually, Somebody agreed that the wounded needed tending to, and they were led away. Nobody else sheathed their machetes, and this seemed to be enough to reduce shouting back to distrustful staring. They think we are criminals, one of the guild women explained. But they will treat Bella and the woman. The inn has rooms where we can stay. What about the zombies? Hazel asked. Zombies? You mean ghouls? There must be a disturbed burial site close to it. They will not stray too far, and we can get rid of them once we have had rest. No, Hazel said. These aren't ghouls. The witnesses have been raising creatures more like zombies from a movie. 
They won't stay where they are, and they'll grow in number. The woman waved a hand dismissively. We will deal with them after rest. After the woman had walked away, Hazel said, Either she didn't understand what I said, or she didn't believe me. Either way, we need to do something. They weren't ghouls. I'll go back and have a look, Miles said. Once we know how many there are and where they're headed, we can work out what we're going to do. But when he returned, he could find no sign of the corpses and could hear no groans or screams. He walked a mile in either direction along the road before deciding that there was nothing to find and heading back to the village. There, they were offered rooms above the tavern and informed that the woman had lapsed into a coma, but that Bella was likely to be okay with some rest. However, a little after three in the morning, they were all awoken by screams and scuffling coming from the street. Quickly dressing and leaving her room, Hazel joined the guild members and two Austrian tourists who were also staying at the tavern in heading out to see what was going on. They weren't the only ones, as nearly the entire village had poured out of their homes in a rush to see what was happening and almost instantly added their own voices to the screams. The first screams came from the undead. A flood of corpses, too many to count, staggered down the road making the high horrific call he had first heard on the roadside. As the villagers saw them and fled, the herd broke apart and those who pursued the living made groaning and growling sounds while those who pushed on carried on screaming. There were too many of them and it was clear they would soon overwhelm the village. Too late, Hazel realised that she hadn't picked up her weapon as two zombies stumbled in her direction. That was when Miles dropped from the roof. He swung his machete, cleaving through the undead in a wide arc, then pushed forward, slicing and shoving. He shouted, Get inside! Barricade your doors! And one of the guild members shouted the translation. Hazel had no idea if the villagers heeded his word or how many had fallen. He was just able to kick away a growling corpse that fell at her from the side of the doorway. Then found herself being shoved back inside by a group of villagers scrambling for safety. One of them, a man in his 40s, was shoved aside in the dash and set upon when he fell. His screams didn't mask the sound of bone and flesh tearing. He helped with barricading all the doors and windows, ignoring the panicked babble in Hungarian, then ran upstairs. After grabbing her machete, she opened the window and stepped out onto the low roof above the stairs. Peering over the edge, you could see that most of the other attempts at barricading were unsuccessful, and the zombies were streaming into the church as well as houses all along the road. Where they parted, they left fresh bodies lying in their own blood, with their flesh torn out and chewed up. There were several older corpses lying immobile, either stabbed through the brain or decapitated, and with the severed head still biting at the empty air. He saw Miles drop his sword as two zombies jumped on his back. He shrugged them off and kicked another in front of him before sprinting in Hazel's direction. One of the dead villagers had risen and was screaming, so he leapt onto their shoulders and used them as a springboard to join Hazel on the roof. Morning, he said. She smiled despite the situation and shook her head. Come on, there are five survivors inside, all from the village, and I've got no idea if they speak English. Two of the surviving villagers spoke English, though not fluently. It was enough, however, for Miles and Hazel to pass on instructions to get some rest. It looked as though the barricades would hold for the present, and they would need their strength for when it was time to move on. That goes for you as well, you know, Hazel told Miles. He shrugged it off. I'm fine, honestly. Don't get your head down, and I'll keep an eye on things till the sun comes up. 
My, it's okay, he said gently, putting a hand on his arm. I know about the nightmares, but... Hazel. He didn't raise his voice, but was gritting his teeth, and Hazel flinched at the sound of her own name. He sighed and then spoke more softly. It's fine. Honestly, we can worry about that when we haven't got to worry about escaping from a horde of flesh-eating zombies. Right. But we will escape, and we'll have to talk about it at some point. He smiled. At some point. In the meantime, Hazel couldn't sleep. But she gave it a good couple of hours of trying before she gave up and came back out to join Miles. He was perched on the roof, watching as the herd of the dead shuffled beyond the village, still screaming. It appeared that the rest of the village was dead, along with the guild members. Only those whose heads were no longer intact hadn't resurrected, and Hazel forced herself not to look at the body in the middle of the road. Disemboweled and trampled, yet still squirming and thrashing. She stayed there with Miles until the sun came up. Neither spoke, but after a while her head found his shoulder and he put his arm around her. By the time the sun was fully up, the road was clear and the dead had moved on. They woke the surviving villagers, who like Hazel had never actually gone to sleep, but had put more effort into staying put and hoping they would find that this had all been a horrible nightmare. None of them wanted to move on, insisting that this was their home and they had nowhere else to go. Hazel and Miles tried to argue that the dead could return at any minute, but there was no movement, and eventually they had to accept that the decision was made. They spent that day searching through the village to put any immobile corpses out of their misery, and put down any more mobile ones who had not followed the herd, such as Bella who was staggering around a small infirmary ward, gnashing his teeth and screaming, before making their way back to the car. Night was falling by the time they got to the car. Fortunately enough, the keys were still in the ignition and the doors wide open after the confusion of the initial zombie attack, so they were able to drive off straight away. I didn't know you could drive, Miles said. I passed my test about a year ago, he said, although to be honest I haven't driven much since then. Probably for the best, your passenger's immortal then, isn't it? Fuck off. But she was smiling as she said it. On his phone, Miles confirmed that there had been outbreaks across northern Hungary and southern Slovakia. The quarantine had been set up and the undead were being dealt with. But as a precaution, all travel out of both countries was suspended until the outbreak had been fully dealt with. Looks like we're stuck here for a while, Miles said. By the time they found the guild cabin, it was after midnight. When they got in, not knowing where the outbreaks were, they barricaded the door and windows. Miles then pulled up a chair to sit down near the door. But Hazel put a hand on his shoulder to stop him. No, you don't, he said. I'm on watch. You're getting some rest. Miles opened his mouth to protest. No. Hip. Now. Seeing the futility in arguing further, he went and found a bed to lay down on. Expecting to humour Hazel by laying there for a few hours, he instead found himself falling asleep very quickly. Sure enough, in his sleep, he found himself stood facing Lydia again, just as he had the night he had killed her. Only this time she wasn't a vampire, and he didn't have a machete in his hand. They were both smiling, and he pulled her close to kiss her. The kisses grew more passionate, frantic, matched by the movements of their hands as they grabbed at each other's skin. Mars found his fly undone, while Lydia's top ended up halfway across the room and her bra undone. And he was hard and inside her, each thrust making a cry out, and her nails dig into his back. He drew blood, 
the sharp coppery smell hitting Mars's nose. The want that hit him in that moment was more urgent than the stiffness between his legs. The hunger deeper than any he had ever had for food. He growled and felt his face change. Lydia screamed when she saw what he had become and struggled against his grip, but he was too strong. With one hand he gripped her neck and held it tight, but left enough space that he could dig his teeth into the vein pulsing against their skin. A warmth unlike any other filled him as the blood flowed, rich and thick, down his throat, and Lydia's life force faded in his hands. He woke sweating and gripping tightly at the sheets. Having heard him muttering and crying in his sleep, Hazel had decided to head into the room, this time to check on him. He perched on the edge of the bed, and without thinking, Mars threw his arms around her. He retained his embrace and could feel his whole body trembling against hers. She kissed him on the forehead and held him until he stopped shaking. When he did, he pulled away from her hastily and pulled the bed covers tighter around himself, looking embarrassed. Sorry, he said. Nobody's supposed to see that. He caressed his cheek and smiled. My, it's okay. Don't apologize. He rolled his eyes. I'm not talking about it. Not right now. But we're going to be stuck here for a while until the zombies are contained and the travel embargo is lifted. Plus, I'm persistent. He smiled at that. Over the next couple of days, they got in touch with the local guild to inform them what had happened to Bella and his team. They also familiarised themselves with the local area to locate shops and stock up for what would be three weeks in the cabin in northern Hungary. After the first week, Miles gave in and decided to talk to Hazel about his nightmares. Chapter 32 Your zombies have been defeated, Lucius said as he appeared before Merahem and the witnesses. But really, this was no surprise. Did you really think such a thing as a shambling corpse couldn't be contained and eliminated? The witnesses said nothing, which was expected as they spoke only rarely and briefly. It was the magistrate who said, Champion of man had strayed within their range, and they saw the possibility of eliminating him. There was no more to it than that. No. Lucius did not flinch from Merahem's stare, but their range will grow. And if that is the best they can witness at such range now, then they are best waiting until it does, and their powers reach their peak. They were gathered in a small dead town called Megado. It sat at the foot of Tel Megado, the hill which had split in two when Lucius had opened it to free Nuado Irondorn. The town was full of life despite the late hour, but none of those stalking the streets were human. They were eight feet tall, broad and powerful. They looked like giant dolls fashioned from sackcloth. Their eyes black pinholes and their mouths a crude line which twisted into a vortex if ever they were needed to speak. Yet they moved and acted as though alive, and there was a mark on their forehead, a number rendered in Aramaic, 616. The champion cannot touch us here, Merahem insisted. So we have to wait for that. Then it is no matter. Equally, it matters little if the champion survived this time, as he will not again. I would not be so complacent if I were you, Lucius said. No. Then what would you have us do, Lucius? What would be your great plan? Move. For now, the world is ignorant of Israel's fate. But that will change. 
when it does, America and others will move to restore the country. And, powerful as they are, the Golem are not indestructible. But the Antichrists have now solidly established their territories, and political upheaval is far harder to fight than demon armies. No matter the world's objections, they will not provoke another open war, even with the one against hell still to come. Do you want us to go back to the land of your Mardi? No. I want you to come to the territory of the Tribulation Saints in America. This will be the best base for the Witnesses to see through their plagues and horror. Merahem frowned and waved a bony, clawed hand dismissively. That is debatable. Think upon it. I will be back, Lucius said, and he smiled before he disappeared again. He knew that he was getting somewhere. After that day's picket, the construction strikers had spent the rest of the day in the pub. It was dark now, and John wasn't quite walking in a straight line as he made his way home. He wasn't drunk, but nor was he sober either. As he moved past it, he didn't even notice the sticker on the lamppost. It bore a silhouette of a devil crossed out, and the words, Demon Free Zone. He noticed the second sticker, 200 metres further on but only shook his head in disgust. It wasn't until the shout of Oi! Hellspawn! that he realised he was being followed. He turned to see shapes, other than masked, illuminated by a streetlight a few paces back. Most of them were carrying weapons. John broke into a sprint. Coward! A shout came from behind him. Scum! You're not wanted here! Their footsteps thundered as they gave chase. There was nobody else on the street. John's heartbeat muffled the shouting behind him as he ran, adrenaline spurring him on. He lost track of his surroundings very quickly, the turns he took having no logic to them beyond the need to keep running and to stay ahead. He ran and turned and ran and turned and kept on running. Then there was nowhere to run. He was in an alley and it was dark. The shouting and taunting became laughter as his pursuers closed in. Nowhere left to go, demon scum, one of them said. John straightened clenched his fists and waited oh good he's got some fight in him after all but only one of the gang stepped forward his weapon an iron bar the rest egged him on but kept their distance they had never done this before and they were scared even though they had him outnumbered the ringleader only hesitated for a moment however John caught the bar on the first swing but then a kick caught his knee and sent him to the ground then the bar smacked him in the temple the world spun. Laughter rang out. Another blow winded him. A third set him coughing up blood. Then the sound of footsteps followed as the others felt confident enough to step forward. John braced himself. He took a hit across the back and another to the forehead. Now the gang were all just ahead of him, formed together in a semicircle. He looked up, straining to see through the blood clouding his vision. But he saw the next swing coming. He grabbed it. But this time he didn't wait. He dropped backwards, yanking the bar from the assailant's hand. A sharp thrust caught the man's throat. Then John leapt forward, swinging and knocking the others down. Again, John lost track of his movements. He was aware of the force of his swings, various shouts and cries, and one blow that caught him in the cheek. But once he regained his senses, he was shaking and bloody. The attackers were all gone, except for one of them who lay slumped on the floor dead 
Have you fucking heard this? Yibbo said several days later as he arrived at the picket line. Heard what? It's and several others asked. Jake's been sacked. You what? It said as an uproar spread across the line. Yeah, apparently he got a phone call last night off Jono giving him the news. He wasn't the only one either. I've had texts from lads about sackings on other sites. All demons who won't cross the line. They've all been told if they turn up, they'll be nicked. During the time they had been out, Gibbo had befriended Jake and the other demons who were down at the picket line. He still went on rants about demons, provoked by newspaper headlines, but somehow managed to separate that from the demons he actually knew. Shower of bastards, someone said, the general agreement. Well, Jono's door's always open if we have a problem, it pointed out. He had said that when the strike had started, trying to paint himself as the reasonable party. Won't that mean crossing the picket line to see him? Another lad asked doubtfully. Not if the whole line goes to see him, Gibbo suggested. This was met with enthusiastic shouts of agreement. It and Gibbo took the lead, and moments later the entirety of the pickets walked onto the site and over to the foreman's office. Those few who were working watched with curiosity until shouts of, Were you looking at Scab? and similar had them ducking their heads. Jono stepped out of his office to investigate the noise, and his eyes widened as he saw what was approaching them. What are you doing in here? He snarled. Ready to get back to work? Is it true you sacked Jake? Gibbo asked. Not just Jake, it said. All the demons who supported the union? There were more shouts of disgust and outrage from among the crowd. Jono put a hand on the doorway, perhaps to stop himself shaking, but his face was set. It was nothing to do with them being demons or supporting the union, he insisted. Bollocks, someone shouted with a growl. They were associated with the one who murdered that innocent lad. Innocent lad, fuck off, came one shout. Another offered. He tried to jump someone and got a hide and he couldn't take. Third said, don't believe everything you read in the papers, Jono. Jono gritted his teeth through the heckling before going on. Either way, he's dead, and they're linked to the murderer. Our company can't be seen to... If you're so sure, then go to the police. He's not sure. This is union busting. Reinstate them. This last was echoed by most of the crowd, growing into a chant. No, Jono said, shouting to be heard. No, no, no. They're sacked. That's the end of it. Is it shite? Somebody else yelled. You won't get us back in until you bring them back. This hadn't been discussed beforehand, but immediately was met with rumblings of agreement. Jono looked panicked now, sweat visible on his forehead. I can't do that, he said, his hands up towards the workers. It's out of my hands. If you want to raise it with... But he was drowned out by the shouts of the men. Eventually, he had to lock himself in his office while they carried on, at which point they marched back to the picket line, cheering and chanting, Jono is a shithouse. A little over an hour after that, a very nervous-looking full-time official from the union faced them. They had seen him several times over the time they had been out, each time trying to argue that as the strike was unofficial, they had to go back to work until an official ballot could be held. This time, he was arguing that by going back they would demonstrate good faith that the union could use to negotiate for reinstatement. 
This prompted an angry outcry from the assembled workers. After the initial furor died down, it earned cheers by saying that all it would do was show the bosses that they could get away with anything and the union would bow and scrape to them. The union official stammered in answer to this, opening himself to a barrage of similar objections. His final gambit was that they were the only industry where this was an issue, and if they went back there was a possibility of coordinating action with other unions. A shout of, Well, we're already out. They tell them to hurry their asses up. And the subsequent jeering was enough to finally send the official packing. Pack the shite. Gibbo said in Kit's ear. What do I pay me subs for? You tell me. Kit answered. You're the steward. So what other places have disputes related to demon labour? Taylor asked the next day. You'd think we would have heard more about it. Not really, it said. Apparently they've mainly been taken on in back office jobs, warehouses, that sort of thing. Bosses are keen to exploit how cheap they are, but not to parade them to the public. In some places, the human workers have taken the Human Defence League's line and forced them out. There have even been a fair few attacks and fights. But there are also lots of organising efforts and a couple of different workplaces are running ballots to strike for equal pay and rates at work. It'll probably spread further as well once word gets out. It'll kick off. And yeah, here you are avoiding that to spend time with us. Miles said, grinning and slapping Kit on the back. Let's just say it wouldn't hurt if John had forgot what my face looked like for a day or two. They were in the boardroom. Hazel was keen to get on with it and offered an impatient, are we ready? With a look in Miles' direction. When he agreed with the shrug, she started off by reporting what had happened in Hungary. You two got pretty close out there then? Kit asked in a whisper. What? Miles asked his face warming. It gave him a cynical look. Come on. Everyone can see it, Jess interjected. But shut up while we're doing business. That last was said as a reprimand to Kit. Feeling like his face was on fire, Miles cleared his throat and tried to focus on Hazel's report. As her eyes met his, she smiled, which provoked Kit to nudge Miles in the arm. Then Hazel was blushing as well. It just seemed too easy though. He finished, doing her best to act as though everybody was just listening to their report. Like as though we killed doubles or the wrong vampires or something? No, Joel said, shaking his head. From what I've read, the High Council held their positions because of age and kept everybody in line through a rigid downward hierarchy. They were capable fighters, but never especially formidable, and it sounds like they've become complacent in the last couple of centuries, where everyone thought they were dead hiding behind the castle walls guarded by Strigoi and tended by human servants. Okay, so we got rid of the Van Fury's leadership then. What about here? Are we still compromised? Technically, Jack said. I managed to find all of our weak points, people being tailed, locations under surveillance, informants. Informants? We've got a couple of vampire sympathisers in our number. We dealt with the tails, switched certain meeting points, etc as they would now don't expect after they revealed how much they compromised us. But they think we missed the insiders. For now. How did they get in? Miles said. The guild only recruits from people who try to get involved. Not as foolproof as it seems, apparently. The Van Fury seem to have been at this since before Laurent went public, as it looks like some of the people we took on were planted. But they're all accounted for and safe for now? He's the last... Me for now, yeah. After I found the first, I went over everyone's background more than once to be sure. 
none of them have access to anything we don't want them to know. And they can all be ditched when we make our move. Ditched? Taylor said, raising her voice. Is that it? We can't just kill them. Hazel said. They got enough of our lot killed. Right. Yes, cut in. Oh, you want a summary execution then? We'll set up a block, force the head onto it, and you can bring an axe down on the neck. There was a moment of strained silence, and Taylor paled. But she forced herself to say, They fucking deserve it. They do? Yes, said. They deserve to die. And if you pointed them out to me in a heated situation, I don't know if I'd be able to restrain myself. But that's different from premeditated murder. Silence again. Finally, Miles said, I'll deal with it. Everyone looked at him. Hazel put a hand on his arm, the fear that he might do something he would regret now playing on her face. Clearly, others felt similar as they ignored the intimate gesture, though he still put his hand over hers to gently free his arm. We can't kill them, because that's not what we do, he said. But they can't just get away with it either. So I'll take care of it. This seemed enough to satisfy everyone that the argument was done, though they all still looked uneasy, especially Hazel and Jess. I've been in touch with other guild outfits in places where the Van Fury have a presence, Jack said, getting the conversation back on track. They've all undertaken the same measures and are happy to coordinate any move against them following our lead. Okay, so everything's in place? Miles asked. Yep. Jack nodded. Now what's the plan? A group of seven teenagers sat in the corner of the ground floor of the club, their backs against what had once been the bar. They were all shivering, the clothes they had worn for their night out on the town insufficient against the draft of the derelict burnt-out building. Across the room, dozens of vampires eyed them hungrily. They didn't attack, not yet, but the thick stench of fear rolling off them was intoxicating. When Gaz walked in and saw this, he raised an eyebrow. What's going on? We were waiting for you, I said. A grin on her face. To celebrate the good news. There was silence for a moment, broken only by the low sobbing of the blonde girl. That pause was your cue to tell me. Gaz said. Oh, yeah. Well, Bryce should be back in a couple of days and he says that we've got allies everywhere we need them. Gaz grinned. Us? Well, it gets even better. Because rumour has it that the reason nobody cited the champion or the sentinel in the past month is that they took a little trip to Hungary, according to a contact I've got over there. How have you got a contact in Hungary? I've travelled a lot in my time, you know. That's raised an eyebrow. What? You've never told me how old you are. No, I haven't, have I? He waved a hand. I'm not in the Van Fury. That shit's only important to those self-important wankers. Whatever. So did, what did the Champion and the Sentinel do in Hungary? They slaughtered the High Council of the Van Fury. Every one of them. Violence greeted this. Then laughter and cheers. That's useful of them. Well, they're no doubt planning on taking Laurent out themselves. He was too self-assured that having them watched and then making sure they knew it and scaring them off him would work. But they'll have just been biding their time while focused on us. Good thing is, with all this anti-demon unrest going on, they'll be too preoccupied to follow up straight away. Which means we can follow through our plan without much worry of interference. Well, 
I'd say this definitely calls for a celebration. As said, her eyes drifted over to the group of cowering humans. Oh yes, Gaz agreed. He grabbed the blonde girl by the hair, making her shriek. Her screams were drowned out by shouts and growls as Gaz dragged her into the centre of the room to die. Sunlight streamed through the window of the bedroom above the castle now, rousing Katie from a deep, dreamless sleep. He awoke to a pounding headache and a throat which felt as though it had been scraped raw and filled with sawdust. The bed sheets were tangled around her legs and her whole body was slick with sweat. The room warm in the heavy way her mum would have described as close. She shifted and struggled, kicking off the sheets with some effort. When she did, Laurent stared and rolled onto his back next to her. She froze up and glanced over at him. He was still asleep, the lack of movement in his chest making him appear dead. His smooth brown skin dry and cold to the touch despite the warmth of the room. Laurent's four-poster bed with its silk sheets and goose-down pillows was the only luxurious thing about this otherwise bland and empty room. She had shared it for the better part of six weeks now, against her better instincts. More than once she had wondered about that, how being saved from vampires by Hazel had led her into the bed of one. And not just any vampire, but the most powerful one in Liverpool. At least Laurent was a step up from Nathaniel, he supposed. He hated and feared him, and when she had a moment alone to think about the situation, it became hard to stop and disguise the tears before anybody else saw them. Yet she knew as much about the inner workings of his fiefdom as anybody, and had been able to use that to help the guild. That was what she told herself in those moments of weakness, at least. It was harder to admit that he was a fantastic lover, and especially that even the pleasure of having him inside her was nothing compared to the ecstasy she felt when he bit her, always right at the moment of orgasm, meaning that she would pass out in a wave of pleasure. Now, after the fact, the wound on her neck throbbed slightly. He wouldn't tear and rip the flesh as was more common with vampires, but pierce her skin as delicately as possible and never drink so much that she woke up weak, let alone enough to risk killing her. He was pretty sure that Laurent wanted to make her immortal, like manners are, so that he had the pair of them as both lovers and food forever. He hadn't broached the subject yet, but she could see the difference between how he treated her and others who came to his club trying to win his attention. They were passed on to other vampires under Laurent's command, and she had seen more than a few who had been around for a while, thin, wretched creatures drained of all strength and kept as chattel yet so dependent on their keepers that they begged for their pain to continue. It was horrible to see, especially since the only thing Katie could do for them was to keep the guild informed until they could take the whole operation down. Hopefully that would be a matter of days now. She climbed out of bed and headed into the adjacent shower, whose spray would wash away not only the blood from the wound on her neck but also the tears she would allow herself while in there. Once out of the shower, she heard voices coming from the bedroom. She wrapped her towel around herself and stepped towards the door, where she was able to recognise them as Laurent and Manazar. It is no worry. We expected that there would be a move against us. Gaz's kind will always reject the kind of discipline and order that our species requires to survive. They are heretics, of course, Manazar agreed. But the humans... The humans are being watched and have responded well to our warning. They are no concern. With respect, my love, I think that they are a concern. Why is that? Speak your mind, Manazar. I value your counsel. I do not keep you around merely to nod and agree. 
disturbing news has come that the High Council may have been slain. What? That is impossible. No mere plague of zombies would have threatened them. No, but a rumour is spreading that the Champion and the Sentinel were in the country before the outbreak, and it is they who killed the High Council. Sure enough, no word has been heard from them since. Hmm. Yet no word of this reached our spies. So we must assume that they have been discovered, and that the guild has not been as compliant as it has tried to appear. So what shall we do, Viceroy? Nothing yet. Just ensure that the contingency is in place. There was a moment's pause, and Katie stepped back from the door to grab a second towel for her hair in case either of them approached the bathroom. What about hair? Manazar said, his voice a lot lower so that Katie could barely make out the words, though the contempt behind them was evident. She couldn't hear Laurent's reply, though she risked stepping right up to the door where she caught the words, won't be any trouble. It's still risky. Not at all. We know all that she has told the guild, and none of it is any great secret you cannot find in books if you know where to look. But when we need her, she will be useful enough. Her heart jumped to her throat, now racing unsteadily. On shaky legs, she stepped away from the door and wrapped the second towel around her head before busying herself with makeup in the mirror. They knew that she was spying on them. In fact, that was probably why Laurent had paid attention to her in the first place. Not only was her life in danger, but so was the guild's whole plan, based on the short snatch of conversations she had heard. What was she going to do? In that moment, there was nothing else she could do. Taking deep breaths to stop herself shaking and suppressing her fears, she finished making herself up and stepped back out into the bedroom with a smile on her face, where she greeted both the vampire and his immortal servants as lovers. Charlie looked over the edge of the bridge with some trepidation before making his way down the steps to the side of the canal. He had never been ushered here before, and not on the eve of a major operation. But the seal was clearly Laurent's, and the orders were explicit, so he had come. When he reached the ground, he saw someone out of the corner of his eye and his heart leapt into his throat. He turned, but in the darkness with only the moonlight reflecting off the water, he couldn't see them clearly until it was too late to run. He recognised Martin and Vicky from the guild, but didn't know them very well. His first thought was that he had been rumbled, but then he noticed that they looked as confused as he did. He held up the brown envelope with the seal on, ready to run if he was wrong, and took a breath to steady himself when they showed him similar seals. He approached them and they huddled together, all a bit calmer but still looking extremely anxious. Why would he call us here? Charlie asked. Maybe he wants us out of harm's way before tomorrow, Vicky suggested. Maybe he's going to reward. There was a low rush of wind and then a thud. Both Vicky and Martin's eyes went wide. Charlie turned, and when he saw what they did, he mirrored their expression, his heartbeat thundering in his ears, and his skin draining of all colour. There's no reward, Miles said, walking towards them. Before he reached them, he circled, and they turned with him rather than have their backs to him. You've been found out, and this is the end of it. The silence grew thick. Charlie's throat felt tight, as though a hand was squeezing upon it, although none was. He swallowed and took several deep breaths in a vain attempt to steady himself. What... what are you going to do to us? Miles grinned, 
His eyes flicked momentarily to the canal and back. He took a step forward, and as one, the traitors took a, took a step back. You've been feeding information about the guild to the Van Fury, Miles said. People are dead because of it. More will probably die yet. What would you do with you? Uh, hand us over to the police, Martin said. Mars laughed. He took another step forward and they took another step back. Please don't kill us, Vicky said. We never meant for anybody to get hurt. Oh, Mars said. Well, that's all right then. In the next moment, he was upon them. They had time to scream before the blows fell and the moonlight blinked out. They awoke in the pitch black to the sound of an engine and the juddering of whatever vehicle they were in over a rough surface. Several attempts to find their footing failed and they were forced to sit where they were in the darkness until they reached their unknown destination and uncertain fate. Charlie broke down in tears. Eventually the vehicle stopped and the doors opened. Before their eyes could adjust they were dragged out into a heavily forested area and flung to the ground. A moment later there was a clatter as three shovels hit the ground in front of them. Dig. No, please. You can't do this. We didn't mean... I said dig. Now. Charlie felt nauseous and dizzy with fear. The noise of the forest that night faded into the background and all he could hear was his shovel cutting through earth and the rapid thundering of his heart. Eventually, horribly, and all too quickly, the graves were dug. Charlie was drenched with sweat and barely had the energy to stand. The terror which gripped him being the only thing powering him at that point. He hesitated a moment, then stuck the shovel into the ground to carry on digging, hoping not to look as though he had finished. Stop. You're done. Charlie looked at Vicky and then Martin, both in at least as bad a state as he was. None of them would dare turn behind them and face Miles. What now? What now? He said, not really wanting the answer. Now, know that those whose lives you cost were far better than you can ever be, and that you don't deserve any shred of clemency or mercy. Yet they were getting it, as a moment later there was the sound of an engine starting up, and they turned to see that Mars was gone. Alone in the forest, who knew where, Charlie collapsed to the ground as the adrenaline in his body gave out. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Philip Dickens Books, for more writing and story-related content. From the Hill of Megado is also available on your favourite podcast service. There's a new episode of this story every Monday, and next week, the Guild's war with the Van Fury and the struggle over demonic rights will intersect in a way that nobody was expecting. See you then.